Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, Food Junkies listeners. Molly here. Can you believe we're so close to half a million downloads? Be on the lookout for a fun video from your favorite podcast hosts. Today, me and Clarissa welcome Mark David to the podcast and discuss his journey with food and body, the mission of the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, and the key principles of eating psychology. Mark believes that our relationship with food is a great teacher and that any unwanted habit is a message from body wisdom. He encourages people to listen to the messages and learn the lessons that food and body are trying to teach. Mark David is the founder and primary teacher of the Institute for the Psychology of Eating. He is the leading visionary behind the fascinating field of eating psychology and the author of the best-selling books, Nourishing Wisdom and The Slowdown Diet, which have been translated into more than a dozen languages. Mark holds a range of qualifications, including a Master of Arts of Psychology and a Bachelor's of Science in Biology, and has participated in several clinical mind-body medicine programs, all of which have shaped his groundbreaking approach to food, body, and nutrition. For more than 40 years, Mark has been an innovator in eating psychology and mind-body nutrition, championing an uplifting, inclusive approach to food and body and a warm, engaging speaking style that contributes to attract listeners from around the world. In September 2007, Mark founded the Institute to channel his passionate mission of sharing an uplifting, results-driven approach to today's most important eating challenges. Today, IPE remains the only institute in the world devoted to teaching the principles of eating psychology and the mind-body nutrition that attracts students from more than 60 countries each year. The Institute's many thousands of graduates have used their world-class education in these revolutionary disciplines to transform the lives of countless people around the globe struggling with food and body challenges. In today's episode, we discuss food and body, Mark David's journey to understanding eating psychology, the mission of the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, and the key principles of eating psychology, exploring strategies to manage emotional eating, learning how to have a healthy relationship with food, identifying the solution to sugar addiction, exploring the benefits of taking a break from certain foods, exploring the archetypes of eating habits, a discussion on nutrition confusion, nutrition change and uncertainty, Exploring the expectations we place on food, relearning how to be an eater, examining the relationship with scale use, and Mark David shares advice on forgiving oneself and finding resources on the psychology of eating. Welcome, Mark. Well, we just want to welcome Mark David today to the podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Clarissa. Thanks, Molly. Well, we're just going to dive right in. Uh, Can you share with us your personal story with food and body How did you get involved in the fields of eating psychology and mind-body nutrition? You know, somehow I think the field sort of chose me. You know, from a young age, I was born into this world. I was born in 1958 and I apparently came out of the womb. I was asthmatic. I was immunocompromised and almost died a handful of times in infancy. And so I grew up with intense asthma. And my parents took me from doctor to doctor, nothing worked. And somehow I was five years old 
I hear a rumor that fruits and vegetables are good for you. And this is back in the days of, you know, Velveeta and TV dinners and Wonder Bread. And so I asked my mom to change my diet. And she does. I wanted more fruits and vegetables. And coincidence or not, my health changed. And for me as a child, it was magical. Because first of all, I realized I could do something. And that somehow food had this amazing power. So I became a nutrition fanatic. From that moment forward, I remember, you know, shopping at some of the first health food stores in New York State. And, you know, eventually when I was in college, my friends used to see me eating all kinds of crazy foods. And I started counseling them because I was also the healthiest. And also at a young age, in my early 20s, I had a nutrition practice on Wall Street in New York City. Go figure. And I was working with some of the most highly educated, motivated, and intense people on planet Earth, you know, Wall Streeters in New York City. Most of them wanted to lose weight. And here I am. I probably had read at that point every nutrition book and probably textbook that was written because you can you can do that back in the 70s. There just wasn't a lot. So I would tell people what to do. Eat this, don't eat that, and you're going to lose weight. And people would come back a week or two later and they say, oh, well, I know what you told me to do. I know what I'm supposed to eat. I just couldn't do it. And this little kind of epiphany happened for me. I realized if I didn't understand the mind of the eater and the heart and the soul of the eater, I really couldn't help people. And I, I was just, I was blown away because I thought nutrition was the answer to everything. And so I thought, okay, let me read a book on eating psychology. And there wasn't any. And I thought, well, let me take a course. And there wasn't any. And then I thought, let me go back to school and learn it. And the best I could do at that point was, you know, this is back in the late 70s, was there was, you know, a couple of universities that were doing an eating disorder training. And I thought, yeah, well, well, well I'm interested in anorexia. And I didn't know what bulimia quite was. But I thought, well, but just what about everybody else? What about all the people that I know? What about my mother and my grandmothers and all my relatives who were dieting since I was a kid? Like, that's the people I want to understand. So I decided at a young age, I would write the books I wanted to read and I would create the course I wanted to take. So here we are. <laughs> that's an amazing journey to just have that curiosity, you know, even at, at such a young age to say like, Oh, there's this thing, like there are these fruits and vegetables and I'm not actually getting them at home and then asking for it and having that happen. And then just this, you know, kind of series of events where you stay curious and you, you ask for changes or you ask for courses or whatever it is. And if it doesn't exist, you create it. And, and that is, I'm assuming that is then how we got to the Institute for the Psychology of Eating. And I'm wondering if you could kind of talk to us about what is the mission of your Institute and why is it so important in today's war on obesity, our bodies, and food in general? Well, you know, thanks for asking that question. It's such a great one. I, I, When I look around at the world and just observe human beings, and I've been doing this, you know, for, for four plus decades, and I just see so many humans struggling with an unhappy relationship with food and an unhappy relationship with their body. And that then leads to a life that sometimes at best half lived, meaning we are gripped by our eating challenges. We are gripped by our weight challenges. We're gripped by unhappiness about our body, confusion about what to eat. 
And all of a sudden that becomes our life. And I'm, I'm shocked still to this day and how I, I can work with people in their seventies and eighties. And they'll tell you, I've been dieting my entire life since I was a child. And, and they're still trying to lose five or 10 or 15 pounds so they can feel lovable. So uh, to me, I founded the Institute because I wanted to help change the way the world understands food and body and help people transform their relationship with food and body so they can live their best life. And it's less about, I want you to eat healthy like me, even though I think healthy food is great. And it's less about, I think you should have a fit body with like a low percentage of body fat. I could care less. It's just all about how do we have the kind of relationship with food and body that inspires us and that empowers us so that we can be the person that we came here to be. And there's not anything in the way in terms of my relationship with food or in terms of my happiness around my body. I love that because that's exactly, you know, what Molly and I talk about is like this relationship with food and body is such a barrier for us experiencing our best life and getting to, we miss all the moments when we're so focused on the what's wrong and how can I fix it and control it. So would you be able to share some of the key principles of eating psychology with us? Absolutely. I think number one important distinction that I love to talk about when it comes to eating psychology, it's is essentially that our relationship with food is a great teacher, is here to teach us. So what happens is somebody might be struggling with binge eating or overeating or emotional eating, or they feel like I'm a food addict and or they're struggling with weight. And we conclude, I've got a problem. Something is wrong with me. If I can fix the thing that's wrong with me, then everything's going to be better. But meanwhile, I'm broken, which means I'm not the real me. And then what happens is from that place of brokenness and there's something wrong with me, we're easily attracted to quick fix strategies. Oh, I'll go on the seven day, you know, eat cardboard diet or whatever it is. And we'll do all manner of abuse to the body with intense exercise and strange ways of eating and food denial all in the interest of fixing myself so I can be happy. And eating psychology essentially says, wait a second, you're here to learn through your relationship with food and body. So it's just here to teach you. And if you can start to learn the lessons that it's here to teach you. So what is my intense judgment about my body here to teach me? What is my overeating trying to say to me? What's my binge eating saying? What's What does emotional eating, it's saying something, it's talking to us. So another way of saying this and another distinction is, is that any unwanted habit is essentially a message from body wisdom. It's a message from the wisdom of life. It's trying to tell us something. So to me, it's all about starting to listen and you know, starting to get curious about, okay, what does this mean for me? How is this asking me to learn and grow? Usually people can't figure that out, figure that out themselves, even though we can, you know, it's nice to get help. It's nice to get some coaching or some counseling. And it's also at least good to have resources that are helping us think in that way. 
So those are, there's, there's more I can talk about, but those are, those are the two kind of core principles that I like to think about because it changes the game. All of a sudden, I'm a student of life as opposed to trying to fix my broken self. No, I, I, I think it, no matter what your spiritual or religious beliefs are, I think we can all agree that at the very least, we're here to learn and grow. Like that's why we come. Since you and I popped out of the womb, we've been learning and growing all different kinds of things. So my relationship with food, my eating challenges are my opportunities to learn and grow. So profound. And it's it's really interesting because I, I come from a solution-focused brief therapy perspective, which I've listened to your podcast and I feel like there's a lot of similarities between your style and and how I see things as well. And you know, one of the assumptions that I work from is that we all have really good reasons for doing the things that we do. And my, and then the next assumption that I usually work with then is that 99.9% of the time it's coming from this place of safety. So when, so when somebody's having some form of disordered eating or disordered relationship with body, dissatisfaction with body, whatever it is, I, I feel the same way, Mark, that you know, there's this question of like, what is, what's the unmet need? What's the missing information here? Yes, I, I I think that's so important because when we can see what's the brilliant reason, there's actually a brilliant reason as to why a human being would binge eat, and it's going to be different for different people. There there will be similarities. So when somebody who's complaining, I'm a binge eater, I'm broken. This is terrible, and there's so much guilt and there's so much shame. And once I can help somebody understand, oh, here's the brilliant reason as to why it looks like you're binge eating, all of a sudden, oh, this makes sense. Like, example, I I see so many people who are on low-fat diets or low-calorie diet, and you show me a person who's skipping breakfast and or skipping lunch or eating a tiny lunch. And I'll show you a person who's going to be binge eating by the by the early or late afternoon. And then here is the person binge eating and what's happening. They're trying to lose weight so they can feel good about themselves. And in order to lose weight and calorie restrict, you have to control your appetite. That's what we believe. We think I need to have more willpower. But then all of a sudden you find yourself binge eating and you're going into all this shame. And I'm saying to the person, wait a second. You're a biological human being who has the need to eat. And when you calorie restrict, when you're deficient in micronutrition, macronutrition, your brain, your body loves you. And it's going to, it's going to scan your metabolism and go, huh, this is a nutritionally deprived person. This person's starving. So as soon as your, as soon as your immune screens are down a little bit, as soon as your guard is down, The brain is going to scream hungry because that's what it knows to do. And your natural appetite will overcome all your good efforts to restrict food. And we think we're a willpower weakling, but no, we're actually a smart human being and we're following our biology. And what's the lesson in there? The lesson is that for so many of us, we're trying to learn how to become not an eater. Let me figure out how to not eat. (laughs) <laughs> and really our job is to learn how to become an eater. Like how, do, how does one have a healthy, natural relationship with food? That to me is the right pursuit, not how do I learn how to not eat? Can you then talk to us a bit about the difference between 
when we talk about like a binge eating or an emotional eating episode, and even if you can elaborate on stress eating, like what is the difference between those three? You know, I think they're all close cousins. And I think in general, what we can say is that no matter what we're doing with food, particularly if it's an unwanted behavior, we're really trying to regulate our emotional experience. We're trying to regulate our physiologic experience. And that's natural. You know, from a very young age, we, you know, look at a tiny infant. Tiny infant is screaming, it's yelling, it's crying. And all of a sudden you give that tiny infant mama and the bottle or the breast. And in a moment, you have a relaxed creature and completely content. So that infant is being held, touched, loved, sung to, it's being fed, and to that as yet developing nervous system, it's all one experience. Food is love, love is touch, food is mother, it's it's all the same. So we have a deep genetic memory going back for eons of time and going back in our own lifetime, feel bad, eat food, feel better. And that's a truth, that's scientific wisdom, that's life wisdom. You, you, you take any hungry creature and you feed them, they're content and happy. You got a dog, you have a cat, you forgot to feed them, and, you, and they're agitated. And as soon as you feed them, they're happy and they love you again. We're the same way. So food regulates our internal experience. Food makes us happy. And so we're constantly reaching for food to regulate our metabolism. I need food. This body needs food. This body needs energy. This body needs certain kinds of nutrition to help it function. And at the same time, we're a package deal because the fact is when you're hungry because you're dieting or you're starving yourself, you're not happy. You're not a great person to be around. You're not going to be fun at parties and it's going to affect your mind. It's going to affect your mood. So anyway, we know from a young age that food regulates my emotions. So if I'm stressed, Every child knows at some age you figure out, wow, if I just have candy or ice cream, I feel great. If I have cookies, I feel great. And to a child's mind, if it tastes good, it is good for you. That's their intellectual understanding. How could it not be? This is so good. What are you telling me is not good for me? So anyway, so we grow up with the understanding, oh, wow, if I'm bored, if I'm nervous, if I'm angry. If people don't love me, if I'm depressed, if I'm anxious, whatever it is, I can eat food and momentarily I can feel better. You know, another way of saying that is we're all programmed to seek pleasure and avoid pain. So that pain might be the pain of I'm not safe. That's a pain. I'm lonely. That's a pain. Or a lot of times we have past traumas, past hurts that are kind of undigested. They're still with us. We haven't resolved them. And that often comes out as unwanted symptom, i.e., I I just find myself reaching for food. And it's oftentimes because emotions are bubbling up and food in the moment brings me pleasure. So it's kind of a great way for the child to regulate its emotional experience. Because if kids get yelled at or they get bullied or if they're told you're no good, you're too fat, you're too this then, oh, that's terrible. I don't know what to do with that, but if I eat, I feel better. So I don't know if I answered your question, but to me, it's always to regulate 
generally speaking, unwanted emotions, whether it's binge eating, overeating, emotional eating, et cetera, stress eating. Stress is an emotion. It's physiologic. You know, I'm anxious. I'm angry. You can be stressed for real reasons. You know, my child is having problems in school. My parents are aging, financial. So that's a real reason. I could also be stressed because I look in the mirror and I go, this isn't good. I need to lose weight. That's a stressor. Yeah. So the way you described it is, is I think you see it a lot in a similar way that we see it as far as like, it's almost like on a spectrum. There's like this emotional eating thing where it's like, oh, you know, I eat this thing and I feel better. Maybe I was feeling unhappy or, or some kind of way and I eat a thing and it's an isolated experience and I feel better and I move on with my day. But then maybe like binge eating is like a longer, right? It's a longer period of time that we're spending in the food and maybe it's a bigger emotion or maybe it's a combination of things that are driving that. But certainly, like you said, they're all, they're close cousins and maybe even on a spectrum. And so what I'm wondering though, is like you said, when, when we get to that point and we look in the mirror and we're like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) While on a very primal level, this serves me, right? There's this genetic blueprint as you described it and it serves me. But when I look in the mirror and I can see that my health is declining, maybe the numbers, my you know, maybe my blood tests are, are showing like high cholesterol or heart failure or something, right? Or diabetes even. How do we start to correct or shift or even minimize these emotional eating episodes in whatever kind of flavor they show up? Such an important question. I think the first thing is to embrace the unwanted habit or challenge, emotional eating, to actually embrace it and to understand it and to say, oh, this makes perfect sense why I would do that. Because part of it is the shame and the guilt and the self-attack and the judgment can really get in the way because we think we're broken. No, you're not broken. Remember, our relationship with food and body, it's a great teacher. So what am I learning through emotional eating? I am learning how to be a human being on planet Earth who has strategies other than food to regulate my emotions. For so many of us, food is is the easiest one. I, I, I think universally, food is the easiest way to regulate your emotional experience. It's fun. It works. And arguably, it's good. Because you can have a tough day at work and you can come home. You can make your favorite healthy meal and you feel good. And it's healthy. And you feel good that it's healthy. And you feel good that you like it. And you feel good that you have energy and that you're satisfied. So, so, so there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. So it's looking at, Oh, this makes perfect sense. Why I would do that. I'm turning to food to help me deal with life. So then the question I need to ask myself is what else can I do? What else can I do in life that helps me manage my experience that helps me deal with? the anxieties, the stressors, the emotions that come up that are uncomfortable for me. So we're here to learn that. You know, if you have kids and your and your child is angry and they're just breaking things and they're hitting people, no. We need to learn different strategies. That's not how we do it. If you're angry and you decide, you know, I'm going to go rob a bank or something, no, that's not how we do it. So one needs to wish to grow. One needs to be willing to see the big picture and step out of the paradigm that we all seem to be taught. We all seem to be taught, it's your fault. You're fat, there's some, you're, you're a willpower weakling, you're lazy, there's something wrong with you. And 
it's really, I'm here to learn and grow. So what else helps you regulate your emotions? Is it music? Is it movement? Is it talking to a friend? Is it, you know, watching cute little bunny videos on, on YouTube or something? Uh, that's what I do. I go to animal videos. And it's really learning how to be a human being that has a sense of connection to my own life. So it does take a little bit of exploration. Oh, what what emotions am I trying to manage by turning to food? You know, I'm 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 thinking this is I've seen this so many times, but I'm thinking of a particular client that I work with who said, you know, I I'm I'm a sugar addict and specifically chocolate. I'm just a sugar chocolate addict and I've been dealing with this for like 20 years. And I reach for the sugar, I reach for the chocolate, it makes me lightheaded, I feel fatigued, I feel sorry for myself, I can't lose weight. And it's all because I'm a sugar addict, and especially chocolate. So she's identified her problem. My problem is I eat too much chocolate, I eat too much sugar. And as I started learning about her life, what I discovered is a woman in her late 40s who does not like her job at all. She does not associate with her employees, her fellow employees at her job. She's kind of in her own little universe. All her good friends live far away from her and she's let those relationships go and doesn't speak to them much. She doesn't really have a social life. She's not following her interests. She's not following her passions. And I'm listening to a person describe a life that's completely not worth living where she's kind of given up and come comes home and watches TV and eats chocolate. So I said to her, your problem is not chocolate. Your solution is chocolate. Your solution is sugar. I said, what we need to do is we need to make your life more interesting than chocolate. Because right now, no human being, including you, can take chocolate away from you because it's the best thing you have going. It makes you feel good. You're, you're not getting any feel good during your day. You haven't dated in years and you're not dating because you think you need to lose like 20 pounds. And uh, most guys don't care. And if they do care, then you cross them off the list. <laughs> it's, it's very simple. So it's interesting how we identify the food as the problem, but it's invariably we're using it as a solution. And the work became, let's start to inventory your life. Like, who do you want to be? What are your dreams? What are your desires? Okay, you want to be in a relationship? Let's start getting out there more. You love dance classes. Great. Like, let's start taking them. You like to travel. Let's start putting that on your calendar. Because otherwise, I don't want, you should still eat chocolate. So you can have somewhat of a good life. Yeah. Interesting conundrum. So really... Yeah, go. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, you're speaking our language, specifically when it comes to working with individuals with, you know, someone who identifies as food addiction. That is the population that a lot of our audience that's listening will identify with that. And for them, definitely, you know, they used food to escape and numb a life that they didn't enjoy. And, you know, it, but for them, it may also be they may need to put down some of those foods because they're not serving them because once they start, they can't stop. And I'm just curious about what your take is on that for some people. If you believe that there is a subset of population that just do better 
when they are not consuming some of those foods that they have long tried to create a a relationship with moderation around. Maybe they've tried intuitive eating and they've tried other, you know, diets, fasting, whatever these things are. And that now they have found this is the most loving way that I can live my life, you know, without having, you know, to try to moderate these foods that I never seem to be able to do. Are you someone who like is aligned with that thinking? What's your take on that? So I like to look at each one of us as we have a unique journey with food and body. You have your unique journey with food and body. I have mine. It's all different. And it's all fascinating to me. And it's all very beautiful. And it's all here to teach us and help us be our best self. So when I hear when I hear a person tell me, yeah, you know, I, I'm 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 addicted to food or I'm addicted to such and such foods, and I've tried everything, I can't let it go. So where I'm going to go with that person is okay, let's stop making that food the enemy, let's stop demonizing that food, let's build it into your schedule. Because if you start to build it into the schedule, if you plan it out, and I'll I'll negotiate with a client, I'll say, okay. How many times a week do you think it would make you happy to eat the cookies? And like, can you just do it one a week? No, twice, three, four times a week. Okay, great. How many cookies? And we'll negotiate. Anytime you're negotiating with a client like that, I'm always going to let them win because then they feel like I won. And then they're willing to comply because they're getting what they want. And you're, and you, I'm giving them permission to eat the very thing that they've been fighting. So all of a sudden, we declared a ceasefire. Because remember, food is not the problem, it's the solution. And and yes, we have the double challenge of the food industry loves to create foods that hook us and attach us and addict us. And uh, too many people are susceptible to that because oftentimes from a young age, you become habituated to those foods. So... Once I give a person permission to eat those foods, we schedule it, we plan on amounts that works for my client, then I'm then I'm going to look at, okay, what is it in your, how's life calling you? Now let's look at your life. How is life asking you to grow? What's the next thing for you? And a lot of times people don't really know that, or sometimes they've never been in that conversation. Because we're just oftentimes going on automatic pilot, doing what we're supposed to do, being where we're supposed to be. And who am I and what do I really want? And I find that once I start to focus on those things with my client, the food piece starts to handle itself naturally because we're actually addressing the challenge for where it really is. Food is not the problem, it's the solution. Okay, so you can't stop eating this food. You tried, great, nice try. Let's stop working so hard there and look at the core places in life that are most important. And for so many people, particularly women, it's around love, it's around intimacy, it's around relationship, it's around meaning, it's around a sense of purpose, it's around a sense of connectedness, it's around a sense of beginning to have an experience where I'm enjoying my body and loving my body because I find that there's a fundamental place where we are taught to be at war with our body from a young age. 
uh, we're taught through uh, the media, through movies, social media, all of it. You're taught to compare. And, and children just naturally do this. Very young people, very young girls are already figuring out at four, five, six-year-old the parts of their body that they don't like and the parts of their body that they want to change. And so we're taught to reject the body. We're taught to be at war with it. And consequently, when we're attacking our own body, that's a terrible place to exist. It's the ultimate autoimmune disease. You know, an autoimmune disease is where your own body attacks its own tissue. And that's that's not a good medical situation. Well, what happens if I, me, I'm attacking my own body? I hate you. This is no good. This has to change. And what happens is that is such an untenable place to live that we have to escape it. And how do we escape it? We turn to food. <laughs> and we escape that intense self-attack oftentimes by turning to intense foods because intense foods will give us the biggest drug hit. It'll give us the biggest chemical hit. And for some people, it just might be a bunch of crunchy food and crunchy chips because they get that salt, they get that savory, they get that crunch, and that's pleasurable. For people, it's others, it's sugar. For others, whatever it is. But we go for extremes in order to help modulate our extreme sense of dissatisfaction. So I want to go right to the core. I want to, I, I want to go, okay, we need to learn to love our life more. It's not even, yeah, it's about loving the body. But it's it's baby steps for so many people to learn how to begin to experience goodness and notice goodness when it's happening in your body. I'll do a pleasure inventory with my clients. Other than food, what helps you feel pleasure in life? Everything, persons, places, things, thoughts, feelings, beliefs, experiences. Like what makes you feel good? All of it. Get a nice long list. And I'm going to look at that list with my client and say, okay, what can we start doing Every day on this list, once a week on this list, once a month on this list. So we're starting to receive pleasure from life. And therefore, I don't have to make food my only source of relief and pleasure. And I'm starting to make my life worth living such that I don't have to medicate an unhappy life with fill in the blank, food, drugs, alcohol, gambling, whatever it is. Hey, Food Junkies listeners. We're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, Clarissa here. Molly Beer and I are so excited to share our upcoming Sweet Sobriety Special Speaker and Workshop Extravaganza with you. This four-day food addiction conference is going to be the recovery retreat you just can't beat as Sweet Sobriety takes over Toronto. Friday night, there's going to be a special Sweet Sobriety soiree. This is an exclusive event for our Sweet Sobriety group coaching members to hang out with your Food Junkies team at a welcome event running from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. Then we have Sensational Saturday at the Residence and Conference Center downtown Toronto. Here, we'll start off with the fabulous Sandra Elia. She'll be doing the topic, Aligning Your Sales to Recovery, Thinking Actions Words. Then we'll have Sophie Rowland, and she'll be presenting on insulin resistance in the brain and how it affects our eating behaviors. 
Then we have Dr. Evelyn Roy, and she's going to talk about how to level up your metabolic health in food addiction recovery. Finally, we have Dr. Vera Tarman, and she's going to speak about, am I abstinent enough? Besides sugar, let's explore alcohol and cannabis. We have a special feature that night. We're going to do a closing speaker panel. Bethany is going to ask our panel some questions that will let you know us better, and we will answer your questions to help guide you along your recovery journey. On Super Speaker Sunday, we're going to have some workshops for you, and this is going to be held at the 519 Community Center in the ballroom. Pamela McHughes is going to do Getting Into the Readiness Mindset. Then we'll have Jennifer Lindo Crank talk about turning information into transformation, the amazing powers of neuroplasticity. Then Rachel Murray is going to speak about craving control, navigating the complex relationship between women's hormones and sugar. And finally, Victoria Hanna is going to speak, do a group hypnotherapy session for a recovery mindset. On Maintenance Monday, we're going to start the day with some group coaching. Then we're going to have a workshop and doing a genogram exercise with the wonderful Cynthia Myers Morrison. At 2 p.m., we're going to do some art therapy. And then 3 p.m., there's an Enneagram workshop. We're going to finish the day with some somatic experiencing. On Treatment Tuesday, we're going to start off again with some group coaching, a super special workshop hosted by a secret guest. And then at 12 p.m., we are going to do some break stuff therapy. We're going to finish this workshop with some courage, commitment, and change hosted by Molly, me, and Bethany. And finally, it's Ask Us Anything. Get to know your host plus figure out what you need to do before you leave this retreat. We'll close up and do our goodbyes. Where is this happening? Toronto. When's this happening? October 21st to 24th. The costs are 150 US dollars for individual event days and 499 US for the entire retreat. You can find all the details on www.sweetsobriety.ca. Now back to the show. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. Yeah, I completely appreciate that perspective. I'm just wondering like, if I am addicted, let's say to the reward principles in some of these ultra processed foods, I sometimes may not be able to access the other pleasures of the world if my obsession is on, you know, okay, you tell me I can eat two cookies. I know a lot of the clients that I would work with would say, oh yeah, well, I'll have cookies for breakfast. I might have cookies for, you know, dinner and a few times a day. This would be like giving permission to go full-blown potential binge. And I know you're talking about setting realistic measures, but so many people we do work with can only experience the freedom and the pleasure in life that you are describing when they remove these foods from their food plan. That is when they feel this peace and freedom that they've never felt in their entire life. That's what I hear commonly from the clients that we work with. And so not to say that these foods can never be potentially reintroduced in the future, but do you think there is that subset of population, maybe they have a genetic predisposition to addiction, 
maybe like you said, at a young age, they have this reward propensity towards anything that tastes good, right? And that until they get some time and space away from those foods, they won't learn to use any other coping skill because it won't be accessible to them. I think there is that subgroup of people for sure. And it's, it's always, for me, it's, it's always important to, I'm always going to tread lightly because I don't want to give food all the power. So I'm, I'm really going to notice and listen, you know, there's another layer to this for me. And that is when I'm working with a client, with another human being, I am listening for who's eating. Who's the person that's eating? So I might be speaking to a a 60-year-old, a 50-year-old, a 30-year-old, or a 20-year-old. And I've had so many clients who say, you know, I'm successful in life. I have a great relationship. I love my kids. I love my job. I make good money. And the only place in life, just everything falls apart is when it comes to food. And then when that person starts to talk about food, even though they're 40 or 50 or 60-year-old, I'm actually talking to a 10-year-old in that moment. I'm talking to the 10-year-old in that person who is in a relationship with food that goes back in time. So what happens is I need to notice the archetype of my client. Sometimes when I'm talking to a client who's, yeah, you know, I, I know I shouldn't eat this, but I do it anyway. A lot of people when I ask who is eating, when I'm listening for who's eating, it's the rebel in them. They just want to break the rules. Why? Because they were given rules when they were a kid. You're fat. You need to diet. This is no good for you. And some of us just go, uh-uh, uh-uh, don't tell me what to do. And as soon as you turn, as soon as you turn your back, I'm eating whatever I want. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. So that rebel in us at some point starts to become a rebel that works against us. It was actually a smart strategy. The rebel is a good archetype. You know, some of the most famous people in the world have been essentially rebels. They're going against the grain and looking at life differently and trying to bring us into a new awareness. So sometimes the client I'm talking to, they're in their food criminal mind and they just they just want to do it in secret because food is bad and food is a crime. Eating is a crime. So if eating is a crime, how do you do a crime? You do it in secret and you do it really fast when nobody's looking. And then you feel guilty and then you punish yourself because what do you do to criminals? You punish them. So I'm listening for my client's archetype, a child, uh, the child in my client, like, no, but, but, I, but, but I want this food. It makes me feel so good. Don't tell me I can't eat it. I want it. I want it now. You know, there's a part of us that wants immediate gratification. So I need to learn how to speak to the archetype in that client and help them see you're in an archetype right now. And ultimately, where I want to take my client is I want to help them move into their age-appropriate archetype. So if I'm speaking to a 50 or a 60 and up woman, I'm, I'm asking her to step into her queen in relationship to food and body. Here's the queen archetype. A queen archetype is not sitting around on her throne and saying, do you all approve of me? Do you think I should lose five pounds? Because if I lost five pounds, you would all love me more. Like, no, a queen is authoritative. She knows herself. She's not trying to compete with the 18-year-old girls. 
She's being their queen. She's being their mentor. She's being their guide. She's bestowing her wisdom. So what happens is for a lot of women and men, they need to step into their royal archetype. You know, if I'm working with a teenager, that's different because a teenager, those are rocky and rough times. So in a sense, all is forgiven. You're learning how to find yourself. You're learning how to find your self-worth. So yeah, it's going to make sense that you're going to want to exercise and have the perfect body and you're going to want to have all the muscle and you're going to want to have whatever. I understand that. So I'm going to work with them a little bit different. So listening for the archetypes is very helpful because I'm always going to point out to my client, once I figure out, are they in the perfectionist? Are they in the food criminal? Uh, some people are in their hedonist. They, they just they love food. They love it. I get it. We all have the hedonist in us somewhere. And for some people, it's very strong. And the hedonist, you know, has its positives. They know how to enjoy life as good as anybody. They know how to like, take pleasure and just suck everything out of it. And at the same time, if the hedonist doesn't have wisdom, and if the hedonist doesn't listen to the voice of the adult in us, the king in us, the queen in us, then the hedonist is going to just say, yeah, I'm just going to keep going. So, but it's all in the context of helping my client grow and helping them understand themselves and understand who they are and accepting those voices inside them. So yeah, there's the little kid in me that that definitely wants to eat what it wants to eat when it wants to eat it. I'm at peace with that. I get it. I don't let it run the show. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll take its input. <laughs> okay. You know, you're at a party, you want to have the cake and uh, it's terrible, but it looks good. Okay. Piece of cake. It's a party. So it's learning how to work with those voices because oftentimes what we're doing is we're not aware of them and we're fighting them. Yeah. So a lot of what you speak of, like just shared, but then also what we've heard you talk about before, like this nutritional value of trust is really what it sounds like. There's like, there's the self-development process and it's about like leaning into this wiser, more middle way voice or archetype even to use some of your language. And I'm wondering about that. Like, how do we build that trust? Is it trial and error? And, and what about when we have all of this noise, right? Carnivore, keto, vegetarian, vegan, paleo, you know, 12-step programs that say everybody eats the same thing, the same weight and measured amount, and you turn it in every day. And I mean, like, how do we build this trust when we have all of this, all of these rules, if you will, or outside noise? Yeah, you know, such a huge question. Let me work backwards a little bit. And I think what you pointed out, Molly, is that we live in a time where there are a tremendous amount of nutrition refugees, meaning so many of us are walking around, just we're just stunned. Wait a second, you vegetarian, paleo, raw food, uh, keto, and everybody, it's all, all the books are all written by experts and MDs and PhDs, and they all say something different. They all have scientific proof, and there's all testimonials you could hear from your friends. I went on a keto diet, look at all this weight I lost, or I went on a vegan, or I went on a paleo. And so we are a planet of nutritionally confused people. So first of all, that's understandable. Because who do you go to for the best advice? You go to the experts. But here we are in the, in the nutrition field and all the experts are saying something different. Not only that, 
but they're kind of beating on each other. And then we, the eaters, we beat on each other. The vegans are beating on the meat eaters, vice versa. And the ones of us who are eating like healthy organic foods, we're judging the people who are, you know, drinking Coke and Pepsi. And it's just a war out there. So I think the first thing, and I, and I will educate my students and my clients about this, I'll say, hey, listen, let's just look at the territory. And the territory is that we live in a time of nutrition change and uncertainty. The field of nutrition is young. So there are, there's no bunch of old people with white beards and white hair and long white coats nodding their heads in agreement about what everybody should eat all the time. So let's get with the program and let go of being traumatized by all the experts. And how about this? How about let's, let's look at it as, you know, something just about every different nutritional system you could read about. There are some nuggets of wisdom in there that are very useful. I've never heard just, just, just about any diet. There's always nuggets of wisdom that we can start to learn. And instead of looking for the perfect diet, stop. There is no one perfect diet. There is no one perfect nutritional system. Look at how many nutritional systems you followed when you were in your mama's womb. You had a cord coming into your belly. That's the perfect diet. When you pop out of the womb, okay, breast milk, there's your perfect diet. When you're done with that mushy, healthy food, that's your perfect diet. As the body becomes more complex, okay. And then your perfect diet might depend on, you know, your environment, your genetics, the seasons, your lifestyle preferences, what's available to you. So don't worry so much and let's start to empower ourselves and let's be nutritional explorers. Because ultimately, no matter what you eat, it's all going to result in the same in the same destiny, which is all going to die. You could eat the healthiest food in the universe, you will eventually die. You could eat the worst food in the universe, you will eventually die. So that's where we're going. So in the middle of all that, who do you want to be? I, I'll, I'll work with a client and like, okay, what do you want from food? Like really, and, and let's just be really honest. What do you want from food? And some people are like, I, I just want pleasure from food and I want it to give me the perfect body and I want to be healthy, and I want to have lots of energy, but I really want it to taste good. And yeah, and, and, I, and I want it to make me live really long and not have disease. You know, we actually expect, a lot of us expect a lot from food. We put a lot of pressure on the food. And I say to myself, okay, great, understandable. What are you bringing to the table to help those things come into being? You want more energy. What are the things you're doing in your life that drain your energy? What are things that give you energy? You want more pleasure from food? Okay, what are the other ways you're bringing pleasure into your life? What are the other ways you're bringing health into your life? And okay, yeah, for me, I want food to taste good. I want food to make me healthy. I want it to give me energy. That That's me. So then I'm going to manage my diet relative to those guidelines, plain and simple. Now, if somebody's, and I meet people who say, I'm going to die anyway. I'm just eat, eat whatever I want. I'm not going to try to diet. I'm not going to, and, and I actually respect that. Okay, you, you know where you stand. I'm not going to try to convert somebody like that to eat how I want to eat. That's where you stand. And, and that's your prerogative as a human being. You're making a choice. But a lot of times what happens is people feel victimized by their body. This is not my real body. My real body weighs less. We feel victimized 
by the world of nutrition. Oh my God, it's so confusing. And we have to take back the power that, okay, I'm going to be a nutritional explorer. And what foods do I like? And sometimes if I'm working with a client, I'll go, okay, okay, name me all the foods you like to eat for breakfast, all the foods you like to eat for lunch, dinner, snacks, et cetera. I'll go through that list with them and I'll say, what do you think are the healthiest foods for you on this list? And what do you think of the unhealthiest foods? And, and I'll just help them start to see, okay, what are you desiring? If you're really desiring weight loss, here's some of my suggestions. If you're really wanting to feel nourished and fulfilled, here are my suggestions. And, you know, it's a little bit trickier with weight loss because I think what happens for so many people is we're taught to view food as the enemy. And I think fundamentally, I have a hard and fast rule in my head that I say to myself when I'm working with another human being as their coach, as their counselor, as their guide, no matter what their eating challenge is, whether it's weight, emotional eating, binge eating, et cetera, I cannot help a person get where they want to go until I can help them let go of the toxic and false belief that food is my enemy. Because if you're trying to lose weight, you have been taught by the world. You've been taught by science that food is my enemy. Calories are my enemy. Fat on my body. Like, where does the fat come from? It comes from food. According to the calories in, calories out model. So therefore, and if I'm fat, that means, or if I have too much fat, or if I don't hit my magic number, then I'm unlovable and my life sucks. But how does that fat get there? It gets there by food. So even though fat's the enemy, food is the real enemy. And you have to defeat the enemy. You have to limit the enemy. You have to overpower the enemy. And it's counterintuitive. But what we really need to do is make friends with that supposed enemy, because it is our friend. We need to learn how to be in a relaxation response around food. Because so many of our clients, so many of the people I think you're talking about, just the conversation of food, we're in a stress response. Why? Because food is what I'm fighting. And that's an unnatural state. You might as well fight breathing. You might as well fight peeing. It, it, it doesn't work. So I'm going to do, ev I'll pull out all the tricks in my book. And it takes time to help a person turn around a lifetime that they were taught as a child. You're too fat. You need to go on a diet. And kids get the message, food is my enemy. But at the same time, food tastes so good. Food makes me feel good. How could it possibly be my enemy? So we have these paradoxical beliefs in our mind and paradoxical experiences. I know food makes me feel good, but I know that all the people in the world are telling me you're too fat and you need to not eat food so you can be lovable. And people are freaked out. Yeah, I think that's perfect. And you said it so perfectly when you're like, oh, you just need to be relaxed around the enemy right? How do people do that to be able yes. to be in that interceptive awareness state, right? Where we can actually like tune into our hunger and fullness signals. And I think one of the biggest things that our clients and probably our audience struggles with is that mindful eating, right? Where you really yes. do have to start to work on building a relationship with something that's been your enemy your entire life and sit there and be grateful for the time that you're yeah. spending with nourishing food. And that takes time. Yes. There's no quick fix for that because essentially as a practitioner, what you are doing is you're helping to rebirth a human being. You're taking them back to the beginning of life and retraining them. Here's your natural state. 
here's how you be an eater. And in order to do that, there's a lot of there's a lot of junk we need to get out of the closet. Like as an example, one of the one of the key places I'll start with, most people who look at food as the enemy, vast majority, they're fast eaters. They're eating fast. The act of eating fast by itself is a stressor. You could be the most happiest, relaxed person in the world. And if I said, okay, here's a meal, I want you to eat it really fast in less than a minute. You're going to go into stress response because the body is not designed to eat a meal quickly. Body needs time. Head, brain, and gut brain need time to communicate. Okay, what's going on here? Am I getting enough nutrition? What's happening? The moment you start to eat fast, your body thinks it's in a stress response. It thinks there's other animals in the environment trying to go after your meal. And when you're in a stress response, what happens? Your heart rate goes up. Your blood pressure goes up. You go into some degree of digestive shutdown. You're going to be producing more insulin and cortisol, which over time can signal the body to store weight and store fat and not build muscle, just the opposite of what you want. So slowing down with, see, here's the other thing. Food is the enemy, but it's also a crime to eat the food. So you're going to do the crime quickly. You're going to deal with your enemy quickly. So I'm going to eat fast. Why? Because if I eat fast, then somehow I'm not really doing it. So binge eating, in part, we're eating so fast. We're uncut. We're not there. Like a true binge eating episode, we disappear. Another part of us takes over. We're not there. So we have checked out. And there's an unconscious devouring primal part of us takes over. So bottom line is we need to call ourselves into presence with our food which means if we're trying to let go of food as the enemy or food as a crime, slow down. Now, that is the hardest thing to do for many people. I, I tried it. I know you told me to do it. I tried it once. I, I, I couldn't do it. What else you got for me? Like, no. <laughs> That's just like saying, you know, if I'm teaching you how to drive, if I'm teaching a 16-year-old how to drive and they're, and they're trying to, you know, put the pedal to the metal and go 80 miles an hour, like, no, we don't do it like that. I don't care how much you want to go fast. Here's the speed limit. We're going to learn how to do this at 20 miles an hour, at 30 miles an hour, because then you get present. Then you're here. What happens is people disembody oftentimes when they eat. We check out and then we wonder, well, I just ate all this food and I'm still hungry. Oh my God, I'm a food addict. Oh my God, I've got a problem. Oh my God, I'm a willpower weakling. No, here's what happened. You ate fast. And when you eat fast, the brain doesn't have enough time to register taste and pleasure and aroma and satisfaction and visuals of a meal, which are going to help you feel satiated. Cephalic phase digestive response, the head phase of digestion. We need, as human beings, the experience of eating in order to feel satiated. Oh, that food was really good. Man, I like that. Wow, I'm full. But that takes presence. You, you have to be here. You can't be out to lunch somewhere. So we're helping our client do something that maybe they haven't done since childhood, which is here's how you stay in your body when you eat. Here's how you stay in your body when you're trying to learn the piano. If you want to learn the piano, you got to sit in a chair. We're going to focus. We're not going to look at the TV. You're not going to look at the cell phone. We're going to look at, we're going to do the thing we're doing. And I don't care how long that takes. That's the process to relearn how to be an eater. I love it. I could have had you do the whole episode on just that because I think that that really is 
one of the founding issues in the speed eating, the standing while we're eating, this never making time for it. It's kind of a side piece, something we just do in our convenience while we are distracted. I think it's so essential. Now, I also know one of the other things that our audience really struggles is with the scale and their relationship with the scale. And I'm interested Mm -hmm. to hear your perspective on like the psychology of this particular number that we all tend to have in mind, which we think that, you know, when we reach that number, all will be well in the world. And what, how do you work with clients around scale use? I would argue that of all the machines ever invented by humankind, the scale might be the most offensive. And like any machine, it's a tool. It's a tool. So of course it's a useful tool. It could be extremely useful. But what's happened is we have learned, we, the collective, we have learned to use that tool in a very negative way. So we let the little machine tell us how we should feel. Huh. I just weighed myself. I lost a pound. I lost one pound. I love myself. This is a great day. This is so good. And then I weigh myself again the next day and I gained a pound. I hate myself. I'm miserable. Life sucks. This is no good. What's wrong with me? So the little machine is telling us, here's how you should feel about yourself. Now, of course, we never stop to think that, number one, take that scale, move it to five different rooms in your house. Chances are you're going to get four different results. Did you take your clothes off? Did you have a bowel movement that day? You know, it's it's that pound is almost meaningless. But really more important is examining our relationship with a number. I'm always going to examine with my client, okay, how much weight do you want to lose? I want and people people have their weight loss number and I am going to help my client see by just very direct conversation, I want to reflect back to them how much power they give that number. Okay, so you want to lose 25 pounds. Have you ever weighed 25 pounds less? Have you ever been at your target weight? Yeah, I have. When? Okay, it was two years ago, five years ago, whenever it was. Okay, so how was that? And I'll get two different answers. Oh, I gained it back. (laughs) Something, 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 and I gained it back. Sometimes people say, I felt great. I I just want to get back to that weight. I felt so good about myself. And I think, yeah, you know, When I have five shots of tequila, I feel so good about myself. I just, just let me get back. Let me just do that five shots all the time. What happens is for a lot of people who have the association that when I was at that perfect weight, everything was great, but it was great for a minute. Why? Because I don't know, you were single, you didn't have kids, you were exercising all the time and you were controlling your diet and you were in an artificial circumstance and you were, and you had a high. And just because you had a high doesn't mean you should you should do heroin or cocaine or crack. I get it that those feel really good, but you don't live in that neighborhood. That's not where you go. So a lot of times what people are doing is they're going for a high, a reference point that they experience because and, and, and it's and it's just a sense of I did it, I made it, I conquered, I win. So that's for a lot of people. But there's another subset of people who just invent a number and worship it. They put it on their altar as if that number is a deity and there's nothing more important than that number. And 
I want to help my clients see that you have the wrong religion. So I'm always going to say to people, you know something, you want to lose 25 pounds, great. I get it. That's your preference. I've been wearing black clothes a lot. That's my preference these days. I got other colors, but black is kind of my preference. So if I'm shopping, I'm looking for black, my preference. I have certain preferences in terms of what I eat. I have preferences in terms of I like sunshine better. I like heat better than snow. It's my preference. But I'm not going to make my life dependent upon my preferences. I'm not going to make my happiness dependent upon my preferences. I'm not going to make my self-worth dependent on my preference. So yeah, your weight loss number, it's a preference. And it's a great preference. Like good for you for being so clear that this is your preference. But how much energy are you giving it? And where would that energy go if you weren't worshiping it and thinking about it and dreaming about it and weighing yourself so much? Where would you be putting all that energy? The universe knows what your wish is. Like, you know, it's kind of like the birthday, like make a wish, blow out the candles, and then you kind of forget about it. Like, yeah, you might do a few things, but okay, life knows what you want. Now let's go about the business of your life, like what's really important to you. So for a lot of people, they need an intervention. And the intervention is called, okay, true or false, this number is the most important thing in your life. True or false, this number is getting in the way of you being present to your relationships, you being present to intimacy. You think you're going to have all this pleasure once you hit that number. And are you having pleasure now? Okay, great. You you want to get to that number. Let's look at all the ways you think life is going to change when you hit that number. Like what's going to change? And usually people have their list and most everything on that list they could start to do now other than fit into my skinny clothes. It was like, oh, I'm going to feel lighter. Like, you know something, I know skinny people who are heavy. You could be any weight and you could be heavy or light energetically, emotionally, spiritually. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of big people who are light. Yeah. There's a lot of thin people who are heavy. So I don't know about that heavy light thing. Yeah. Okay. There's a difference. Sure. You lose 40 pounds. You're going to feel lighter, but I know people who lose a lot of weight and they don't, they, they feel more fear because they're going to gain it back. So nothing's really changed. Okay. They changed their body. So I'm always recommending to people take a vacation from the scale, wrap it up, Put it in your basement. I prefer you step on it and kill it. And just notice how you feel. Notice your body. That's what's important. I want people to feel embodied. Like, how do you feel? Not how does the number on the scale tell you to feel? Because then I'm not in touch with my body. And if you want to shift the body, here's the thing. If you want, people have these big ass. They're, they're, they're making, it's a big ask of the body to lose a bunch of weight. Like it really is a big ask. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a bad ask. It's just a big ask to lose a lot of weight. So if you want to have a big ask of the body, you have to kind of be in your body to help it make its shifts and changes. If you want your car to go somewhere, you got to be in it. You got to know how to operate it. You want to go 500 miles? Okay, you got to know, you got to gas that car up. You got to get nice and comfortable. Got to have your snacks in there. So you, you, you have to know your experience of the car. You have to know how to drive it. And you got to be present when you're driving the car. Because otherwise, you're gonna, you know, not going to make it. So same with your body. You got to be in your body. We promise ourselves, you know, something. This is not my real body. I don't like this body. I reject this body. But 
when it's nicer, then I'm going to be in it. So we literally tell life and we tell ourselves, I refuse to be in my body until I lose the weight, at which point I will just magically be in my body. That doesn't happen. The way you be in your body is to be in your body. And you start with the body you have in order to get to the body you say you want. But you first have to be in the body you have. And for me to be in the body I have, it takes a little bit of acceptance and a little bit of kindness. I could talk about this stuff forever. I'm sure you all can too. <laughs> we could too. We we could listen to you forever too. I'm um, just your your experience of all the clients you've worked with over the years and just you know the learning and experiential learning along the way. I believe I have a lot to still continue to learn from you. And I believe our listeners would love that as well. So the bigger question then is from that, can you let people know what you're currently working on and where they can find you if they want to pursue finding out more about you, Mr. David. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, so go to our website, psychologyofeating.com. That's where you can learn all about what we do, what we're up to. I have a training program for professionals. It's called the Mind Body Eating Coach Certification Training. So we train people who are already practitioners or who are you know, wishing to be a coach to work with weight and body image, overeating, binge eating, emotion, emotional eating. It's a blend of psychology and nutrition. And we also have a wonderful program called the Emotional Eating Breakthrough online program, help people with that. And there's all kinds of free resources. I just, you know, you all might be interested in this. I just um, created just like a, a, a free report. It's called The Eating Archetypes. And it's it, it talks about the food criminal and the perfectionist and the child and the hedonist and the food champion. So you just go to our website and you'll see a place to download the eight eating archetypes. And it's just a great place to start to kind of discover some of your own eating psychology. Well, that definitely sounds exciting. So we'll be sure to share all of that. Before you go, though, we have a signature question that we ask everyone. We just kind of tweak it a little bit to make it a little more personal to you. And so we were wondering if you could tell a younger version of yourself, be it that little guy at five years old, or maybe even, you know, 10 years ago, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about the psychology of eating, what would you tell him? I would say, always forgive yourself for whatever you think you've done wrong and forgive yourself as soon as possible. Because the sooner you forgive yourself, the sooner you can move on. So no matter what you ate or what you didn't eat or what you should have ate or how much you should have weighed or what you should have done, it's it's all forgivable. Forgive it in, 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 in 15 minutes and then start again. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Mark David. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you. Well, I love being in conversation with both of you. Thanks, Clarissa. Thanks so much, Molly. I'm loving the work that you're doing and and so needed in the world. And it's just, yeah, I think it's just so important to to have an honest and real and compassionate and inclusive perspective on food and body. I think that's what people need. We couldn't agree more. Thank you again. All right. Take care. Okay. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. 
Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.